You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one podcast in all things communication, advertising, and marketing. I'm your host, Ted Lau, award-winning agency owner, podcaster, and family guy. Today on our show, we have Eric Austin of Vale Resorts. As an experienced leader in destination resort marketing and sales strategies, Eric has developed industry-leading central reservations businesses through entrepreneurial governance and innovative strategies. A seasoned bilingual professional in working collaboration with partners, development of brand and co-op marketing advertising plans, integration of digital technology, e-commerce call centers, and sales processes that drive traffic and measurable results. Having helped build Whistler Blackcomb to the iconic global brand that it is today, Eric has now set his sights on helping and leading all vacation reservation call centers at Vail Resorts across the company. Eric resides in Vancouver, and a fun fact is he has a famous grandfather-slash-mentor named Herman Jackrabbit Johansson, who is a pioneer in Canadian skiing. Eric, welcome. Thank you. Good to connect, Ted. Absolutely. So you're a bit of a pioneer yourself, a trailblazer in skiing, in winter sports, and turning Whistler into a global brand. But we really want to hear a little bit about your origin story, where you came from. You mentioned your bilingual and so I want to understand a little bit about who you are and how you got to where you are today. I'm going to try and keep that a little bit brief, but it's been a wonderful journey. And it's kind of reversed from a lot of other people might have flowed. I started as an entrepreneur. The first job or business, it was starting a new business. And you learn an awful lot by starting a business because you've got to cover all the bases. That was really the infancy of learning how to market was trying to drive your own business. And, you know, I grew up in Quebec and in a small town called Montremblant and a very bilingual town because, you know, it's a tourist town, British father, Norwegian mother and French community. So a little bit of a mixing pot. You learn how to market and manage and take care of people because in tourism, that's a large part of it. So my friends and I, we would go skiing in the wintertime and we'd watch the snow melt in the springtime. And suddenly the rivers go high and we go, well, that'd be cool. Let's go to a float down the river. So at 15, we all bought kayaks and started going whitewater kayaking down the local river. And then someone said, well, can we come along? And that we got a raft and people came along with us and we go, we could make a business out of this. Oh, yeah. So we started a business, you know, at 20 years old with a rusty pickup truck and three rafts and started running tours. Suddenly we found out we needed to promote this and it was a good, right place at the right time. And we promoted it. We were from 600 people a year to a few years later, we're running 6,000 and then all of a sudden 25,000 people a summer down the rivers. You invented whitewater rafting? Is that what I'm hearing? My goodness. So how did you grow? How did you, you know, develop... And it became an adventure brand. It risky, but safe. It was adventure and high thrills and communicating all those things of the excitement. And we started advertising in the cities in Montreal, an hour away, Ottawa, an hour and a half away. And it really took off. It was uh, when everybody traveled in groups. So we worked on group organizing and free passes for those to organize. And it was a network of marketing campaign that we did. And we bought remnant advertising on TV and the excitement and the imagery of the rafting communicated well with the audience. 
And it suddenly became bigger than life. And the culture that we we built around it and the adventure was very exciting and everybody wanted to be part of it. So a couple of things that we did along those lines were very textbook, but we really had to learn them on our own and it just made practical sense. So a lot of those sort of fundamental things that I learned early on and how to get out there and how effectively, and you're running a small business, a seasonal business, you really need to learn as to what makes sense, what returns on investment in terms of your advertising and marketing and brand. And we did a, an excellent job of that from brochures in the day, because this was in the 80s, and we didn't have the internet. But there we have the turning point. A little bit later on, we said, well, what do we do in the wintertime? We've started a reservation platform for our whitewater rafting because, my God, we have 25,000 people a summer. You've got to have an organization to do it. So you learn the back end of the business. In the wintertime, there was a condo rental company in Mont-Tremblant because InterWest had bought the company, huge expansion to the ski area, and it's very popular. It's the number one ski area in eastern North America. So again, Here's a huge investment and people want to come to the area. So this reservation platform we built, well, we can rent condos with that. The interesting thing here was that it was just the start of the internet and that turned the travel business, you know, really around or upside down, really on its head. The old traditional, I'm going to call and I'm going to find where a place and everybody having to sort of sleuth around and look through brochures was suddenly changing. We would go to the ski shows and promote this and market it. And we got so many phone calls, we filled the condos. And then we're going, wow, they're doing a pretty good marketing job with this brochure about all the things to do in Montrambla. We talked to the hotel down the street and said, listen, if we're full, would you take a booking from us and give us a commission? And they said, yeah. And you know, in fact, next time you go, let's co-op the costs. So suddenly we're leveraging costs of marketing with other guys, other hotels, other properties around. And then all of a sudden we're going, well, you guys do it well, so why don't you just go and lead with it and we'll give you a whole bunch of money to go marketing. So suddenly this idea of co-op marketing started to play into the mix. And so we could leverage dollars from a variety of people to do $1 plus $1 equals $3 in advertising. And we said, hmm, this is interesting. We've got something here. And we started to build this business and it took off. We bought from our programmer, the pure URL, trombola.com. And that was, you know, in the days, $1,200 and a, oh my, and another computer. And that was it. It was just, no one else thought it was going to be anywhere. So we started an e-commerce side of the business. So we could do transactions online. We could still advertise. We had the website and this is in the mid nineties. So this is all sort of, okay, we've got something here. My partner and myself would go to Whistler to ski and we'd fly out to Whistler, love the skiing. And we go, wow, this would be a great place to do this also. So we cloned a couple of computers and opened in a garage in the bottom of Whistler. And <laughs> we started to do the same thing there. And we're going replicating the story of being able to solve somebody's problem. And that's the essence of, I see it as a business opportunity. Somebody wants to come to a ski area and it's very complicated. There's a lot of different parts. You've got lodging over here. I've got ski school. I've got lift tickets. I've got, you know, transportation. Where do I go? How do I get there? I've never been there before. How do I put it all together in something that makes sense? So we just built packages and put things together. And the internet gave us the ability to sort of highlight all those pieces and put them together. So the other part of the equation, as you start to solve somebody's problem by just making it easy, and that's a business 101 metric, 
If you can make something easy, there's a margin in there for you. But then you also have to have a brand to go out there. So working with the mountains, be it Montremblant or Whistler, we went to the mountains and said, hey, you guys have a great product here in the mountain, but we have a very good way to fulfill on all of your marketing brand promises. Why don't we work and collaborate together? So when you do your advertising, you actually have a way in which to transact and measure what your advertising is doing. So that collaboration led us to further conversations and then they bought the business. So IntraWest bought us out in 99 and we became partners in sort of building both the brand and the transactional side, the offers, the packaging, making it easy for what is a complex trip for most people and just making it easy so their experience is truly wonderful and they get what they're paying for. And we actually can tailor the product after what their needs are, and we can sort of ask those questions. So building a product, a tailored product around what their needs are, understanding what the brand is and how to promote that. So it's kind of the sweet spot between the brand identity and all of the authenticity around those core components, and then translating that into a functional online experience transactional and it actually makes money and it's measurable. So you learned a lot. And there's, I mean, it's a short, it's a bit of a long story, but there's a lot in there. That was the age of then the keywords and Google and Yahoo was big and this was there and, and magazines were still a big part of the mix. Well, over the last 20 years, a lot of that sort of way you go about advertising and merchandising your products has really been turned upside down. So it was being there as a somewhat of an entrepreneurial approach to the change that's going on and really adapting to that was the secret. Well, so it sounds like you were very entrepreneurial in the early days. And I mean, you grew quite rapidly, a lot of success. And like you said, it was about adopting technology and finding a solution to a perceived pain point that any of your clients had and now happened to be mountains for you. Now, there was a lot of change. Over that time, I think you said you started in the 80s. So phone books and printed brochures, and then you got into the early days of e-com. What's changed over that time from a psychological standpoint from the buyer profile? Has has anything changed or is it really still the same, just addressing a pain point with, with the technology of the day? The consumer has not really changed. I still want to go and achieve and get something. What is the way in which I go about doing that? So the process and the technology has changed the need. You're not buying necessarily one thing before the other. The process of if you're going to talk to somebody on a phone, you're going to answer the same questions that you're trying to answer online. So the technology has maybe complicated it a little bit as much as we say sometimes it makes it easy. We still run call centers and average cart size is so much bigger on the call center than it is in an e-com just because you can communicate sometimes better than it is in a digital environment. It's still complicated. It's not quite as easy. But I would say the consumer has found many more ways in which to interact with your product or your property or whatever you want to call it. And that is today the challenge. 
You've got this omni-channel approach that you've got all sorts of different ways in which to reach out. So that also is a challenge, but an opportunity at the same time. So I think the complexity has increased, but the basic consumer requirements and the problems they need to solve are similar. Okay, so you touched on something that not a lot of our guests ever really talked about, at least the ones that I've interviewed, call centers. Okay, I don't, I don't talk to people about call centers, but I can't say this as an overgeneralization, but I can say from my own experience, I hate talking to people from call centers because it's so painful. At least I can think about my recent experience with the cell phone company. Actually, the credit card company was okay. The bank was terrible. So what makes your experience in the call center less, <laughs> I want to say, painful for your buyer, or how can you make it so it's world-class? Because everything that you've touched, it sounds like, has become world-class. What's your secret? Well, you need to be relevant. I mean, I think that's pretty core. So again, what's the problem I'm trying to solve? I'm trying to make it easy for people on a very complex process of where do I go and get all this stuff and find out the prices and all this kind of stuff. If you're just buying a cell phone, there's the plan. There's the price. If you're buying a room night at a hotel, well, you know, Expedia and the OTAs and, you know, booking.com. Yeah, it's like, this is it. But they're not going to tell you where ski school and bring your kids and the lift tickets and all the rest of the complexities. It's a little more challenging. So on the complexity side, that's where a contact center or travel consultant, I might be uh, better to say, whether you have the expertise. If you go on a ski trip, for example, and there's no call center for Airbnb, but any OTA, it's probably some centralized call center in some location in Vegas or something, you're not going to get the local expertise. So what we've tried to do is have destination expertise because you can't get that anywhere else. People search on the web and they spend hours each night combing this and looking at maps. And yes, it's become way more interactive, and everybody has been there, but you still sometimes need, what are my options? Can you just coach me? Give me two options. What might be when I'm coming, what I'm doing? And so we facilitate as part of the process. And it's just that, yeah, let me ask you a few questions. And that's from the consultant's perspective on what you like, or sometimes what didn't you like about your last vacation that you would like to change? So sometimes you can pull out information from the customer that they don't even know. And all of a sudden, let me help you with this. So it's really helping people. Yeah, there's an interaction and we have to train to it. We need, there's a lot of stuff in the background that we need to be able to sort of process and support and send out itineraries and all, all of that kind of stuff. But it really is solving the complexity of travel. And that's where the call center consultant can come in. Not a lot of people like to use the call. They'll use text, which we do. And AI has played a big part in answering the simple questions. But putting it all together is a little bit more challenging. So roughly 50% of our full vacation packages are still done on the phone. That hasn't wow. changed. It might go to 60. But if you just want a lift ticket or something simple, you can still do it online. But the complexity side of it is where that value proposition placing. A human touch. So what I'm hearing is that you have consultants on hand that are really aware of the local destination, can educate and have this kind of human approach. So 
do you train for that? Do you interview for that? I mean, there's not a lot of folks that you can interview in some of these places, or, or do you educate them when they come onto the job? Well, a couple of years ago, if you go to a ski area or any resort town at the moment, finding employees is really tough. I would imagine. And it's near impossible. And the cost of living is really high. So a number of years ago, we started to move to an at-home employee experience. So you can be remote. Uh, you are on Zoom or, or Teams or something like that, or just on the phone, and you can execute uh, those calls. The other piece is, yes, you need destination expertise. They need to have been there. We hire to people who have maybe some skiing experience or some travel experience, but there's, you know, fam trips and there's uh, education ongoing. So training becomes a big part of it. And, you know, you have to build modules that can orient people and we train people. But we've, we've had people here 15, some 20 years that they've been a travel consultant and they do that as a profession. So it's not the typical call center turnover. You know, you try and compensate them reasonably above the sort of minimum wage standards and you retain people that way and they can work from home. So that's been a little bit of a recipe. And, you know, people do appreciate it when they figure it out that, you know, someone can help me along this process. That's very, very interesting and insightful. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now, I wanted to get your insights, actually, on your experience of the 2010 Vancouver Winter Olympics. Vancouver Whistler Winter Olympics. Because side story, I think we were talking on the pre-call that I actually was involved in the Winter Olympics, the opening ceremonies as one of those dancers as the, the athletes were coming. I was called an athlete marshal and it was a lot of fun, a lot of fanfare. Vancouver is a great place you know, to host and, and just party during the Olympics. I got to watch the closing from the athlete's tent 
because I was a performer in the closing ceremonies as well. But you, you actually were in there, you know, making things happen, especially being with IntraWest. Tell us about that experience and, and what that was like, because it's a once in a lifetime experience. Well, I don't think I slept much for three weeks, that's for sure. But it was truly a once in a lifetime opportunity. If you haven't been to an Olympics, you should go. And it is not as difficult as you think. But the organization behind is massive. It's huge. The infrastructure that goes in to building out the facilities and being prepared, the security involved, it's on a level well above any other kind of uh, event. And it's exciting because the athletes from all over the world are here and they're competing for something that's probably far larger than their old World Cup disciplines and so on. So there's a lot of euphoria. There's a lot of engagement of all kinds of people. And they put all the rest of the political elements or uh, demographic or geographic elements behind them. And it's one big, wonderful experience. So I think that was truly, it went off well. The other thing is it puts, you know, places like Whistler on the map. And I think that was a game changer for Whistler. It became in British Columbia, you're not on the mainstream travel between Europe or Asia or US. We're really out there in a, it's not a normal travel unless you're flying over to Hong Kong, but it's not a, a place that people normally come. So to promote this as a destination, it's the beauty, it's the scenery, it's the experience they have here. And I think the Olympics was a great platform to showcase Whistler and British Columbia, for that matter, and Vancouver, obviously. When people got to see that, you know, the talk shows, the, the hosting shows that were here and the interactions with the locals, boy, it put us on a pedestal well above anything we'd seen before. And I think we've seen the reciprocal benefit because the years right after the the visitation didn't necessarily come immediately, but two years later and all the rest of marketing and merchandising that was done, the numbers just kept on climbing. And that was probably one of the main showcase pieces that drove that business. Was there a particular challenge that you remembered an obstacle that you overcame during that time? Because I had friends that worked at Van Ock and whatnot. And like you said, those those folks didn't sleep probably six months prior to, and it wasn't just the three weeks. It was like a lot of just, it felt like they were working on this ongoing TV show. That's what it felt like. At least the friends that I saw, you know, and you didn't really see them. You just saw them, oh, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I'm so busy. So what challenge did you experience over that period leading up to the 2010 Olympics? Any insights that you want to share? I guess it's Who's on first? Who's on second? You know, it's just like, okay, who's taking care of this? Who's taking care of that? That's being done. It was such a monumental task and so many different groups involved. Yes, it was collaborative, but it was tough to navigate sometimes. But by and large, it went very well. I thought what was really impressive was the ability to react whether it was snow at Cyprus because they needed to run events and they brought snow in from somewhere else, they trucked it in. That's right. I forgot about that. Right. I I mean, you think about, I got to put this event on. And your event, when you were there, you can probably recall that the flames didn't come up or the the pedestals. I think it was like, was it Gretzky's or something? You were just sitting there, standing there, right? And it's got stuck in the opening ceremonies, but everybody took it at heart. Things happen, so you adapt. And in the closing ceremonies, they made a fun joke out of it if somebody pulled a rubber chicken out of the arm. 
And I mean, that's the brevity and the fun, I think, was the spirit that uh, that really played into it. So you've got to be ready pretty much for anything. And there were some other things. There was a bobsledder that perished on the very beginning in, right. in a tragic accident. Uh, so, you know, the ability for the teams and all of the organizers just to be able to sort of react and manage the stories that were going on. Overall, there were a couple of tragic ones like that, but then there were also the gold medal for Canada in the hockey, which is one of the premier sports and, and many, 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 many others. But the facilities are still in place today and there is chat and discussion, as you know, about another bid. So it, that's one of the benefits because these are the legacies that we have from the Olympics that uh, these facilities are still, for the most part, available to use again. And in top condition. So now, you know, you've moved on. It's been what, a dozen years since then. And now you're at Vail. Tell yep. us the experience there, what you have, your sights on the horizon there. What's what's next? Well, uh, Vail's been another interesting because since the Olympics and since the ownership changed a number of times into West-owned Whistler and then a, a private equity firm was involved, it went public, a couple of other investors. So over time, the, the, the structure has changed. About five years ago, Vail Resorts came in as Whistler was a publicly traded company and put a bid on it and purchased the shares. So Vail owns 75% of Whistler. Nippon Cable owns the other 25. Just that's a partnership that's been there forever. When they came to Whistler to see what was going on, they came across my team and what I do in terms of marketing and, and running this support and fulfillment center and technology that went along with it. And they went, wow, we could use this down in Denver and for the rest of the resorts. So I got hired to come down and implement an enterprise-wide system similar to what we've done here. So it was great. I'm going, wow, here we go. We're going to put it on steroids and we're really going to create a whole network. So that's what I've been working on down at Vail is to have a network that is consumer centric, being able to have that platforms in a similar mode that we can sort of help and fulfill people. And we have an epic pass program, which is really you buy one season pass and that's for all of the 40 ski areas that are there. So Slightly different approach, but at the end of the day, you're still trying to solve much of the same problem, just on a much larger scale. So we still have work to be done on all of this kind of omni-channel and communications and being able to fulfill at scale for all of these pieces and trying to leverage the network where it's not just one mountain and you can solve all your problems. Whatever you're trying to solve, you've got to do it for 40 areas because it makes no sense to have independent, you know, activities. So you're trying to leverage the network. So that's probably the main difference between uh, when you expand to a larger organization. So there's a lot more collaboration in that larger organization that needs to go on. Similar to the Olympics, a lot of different groups and people trying to do, you can take that in business in anywhere. So you've got to learn a little bit different ways to approach to get things done and, and collaboration is, and communication is a big part of it. So with regards to doing this now at scale, it's not that Whistler was small by any stretch of the imagination, but now 40 some odd X that. Are there any books, consultants, any kind of new tactics that you had to employ? Yeah, you have to employ enterprise-wide solutions. So in this business, each area has a little bit of a unique character. Mm-hmm. Some of them are big mountains, some of them are small little mountains, some of them are like close to urban centers in eastern North America that are you know very small. But 
all people still have the passion to go skiing, whether it's a big mountain or small mountain, what they have in their backyard, and they want to get outside and do that. So you're trying to take those key threads of experiences that is consistent across all these places and trying to build a network out of it. And so it still retained the unique identity of that particular location. So it's an interesting balance that you have to build. And what is the technology behind that? So everybody's going to buy a ticket. That's very simple. But maybe it's hours of operation, some of the ski schools, some of the night skiing, some of the tube parks, tunnel, all these kinds of other variables play in there. So, and that's just for our particular business, but you have to think scale to be able to do it. And it becomes a little bit of a trade-off in terms of unique personality and tailored custom fit versus the enterprise level that makes much more sense to support. So it sounds like you got a thread. Part of that. It sounds like you got to thread a lot of the commonalities, the passion for skiing, the passion for destination holidays, and all the while think enterprise, meaning you got to make sure that there's some kind of commonality that you can do and then still provide uniqueness to that particular destination. Correct. Wow. Okay. So, well, from the marketing perspective, imagery, photo shoots, product descriptions and stuff like that, you still have to have that unique information. So there's a team on the ground that needs to build and be able to have that content because so much of it is content driven now and telling those stories. So you have to have the unique content for that particular area, but it's got to fit into a larger standard enterprise model or box, so to speak. Let me ask you this. So a lot of the things we've been talking about is consumer, right? D to C, direct to consumer, B to C, business to consumer. How much of your business is B2B side of things? I know a lot of folks that run destination management companies for corporations. They want to throw a retreat. They need to book a hotel for their you know, 200 guests, for their staff, and then go on a, a big trip. How much do you focus on that? And is that type of marketing different than what you're doing in the B2C space? Yes, it is. And you know... That business, and there's kind of two ways to look at it. You have the group business, which is kind of the individual kind of groups and tour operators. And then you have maybe the corporate business where it's meetings and incentives and stuff like that. Still important part of the mix, the travel businesses, ski resorts, the majority of it is direct individual travelers coming to the resorts. So it's the B2B side is not as large volume, but it's still an important segment. And on the wholesale side, which would be a tour operator or destination management consultant, kind of, they get the information and they merchandise that. And there's a lot, I mean, Whistler's worldly. There's people in South America, you know, Brazil is a big market, Australia, New Zealand, huge markets, the UK, huge market, and a little bit of a mix from all over. And these Japan used to be big and place like Sweden's a little bit of a hotspot. I mean, you get all these different markets. And so you need people to be able to tell your story in those markets. So that's where the B2B comes in. And so you need to support that business, wholesale rates. And it's kind of typical in the travel business that you have these distribution channels. So these still exist, but the world of the internet has changed direct to consumer. And it's empowered people that I can get that information direct what is my value proposition to go through an intermediary? And that is the challenge in the business now. So if you offer a unique experience or a guided tour or 
some sort of unique benefits such as discounted airfare from overseas, you can do that. And that's the value proposition. And that's why people would go through there and they might go there or somewhere else also. So that B2B, the business has a certain place. The corporate side of things took a beating over COVID because mm-hmm. who's organizing business meetings, conventions. So that is just starting to come back now post-COVID. And a lot of the ski resorts, for example, were built on conference rooms and a mix of a larger group business because that was all part of it. They had golf courses and, and convention centers. So there's still a big part of that that is necessary. And hopefully that will come back because it's all part of the mix for most of these resort towns. Because the resort, the whole town really relies on the mountain and it's there. And then it's all the ancillary, you know, hotels and activities that go on and restaurants. So it's a collaborative approach amongst all the players in town to work to support those B2B sides of the business. But the majority is B2C. All right. Okay. So I have a question that I want to pose to a pioneer like yourself in the industry. So you started when it was web zero, no web. Then you got into web one, which is, you know, websites, e-com, web two, right? I think you talked about photos, you know, the Olympics probably, you know, was, was a lot of web two, social media. You know, my agency, Ballistic Arts, started when websites were HTML still. And then now we do a lot of, you know, SEO, PPC, social media, all that kind of stuff, video. But now there is Web3, the metaverse. I was just speaking to a gentleman on the West Coast yesterday where their entire business is Web3, doing VR, AR, talking about engaging with Meta, formerly Facebook, and how they can get their daily active users up by doing Web3. Any thoughts to that yet in your business as to how to engage that, or is it still too early days? Well, It's still rather early, and it's something that definitely is on the radar. The sport of skiing lends well to that kind of medium to be able to be interpretive and having these VR experiences. And it was interesting. We tested out, you know, we used to go to sort of shows, you know, or ski shows and stuff like this, and we'd have VR experiences. And uh, I mean, there'd be a lineup. 20 deep just to have that experience. So testing the product, testing that out to see what the people like about it is understanding, making it a viable part. I think for my experience, it helps promote the brand, mm-hmm. promote the experience, visualizes the experience. There's a lot of cool things that you can do. Also just merchandising the products through that meta side of the business. Pretty interesting also. AI plays into this also. And certainly profiling individuals and selectively targeting them based on certain profiles and interests, if you like this or or you do that. So the data side of the business is really where those two match up. And the data that you have, if you buy a, a pass, for example, and you ride the lifts, you're tracked. How many runs did you do? People are competitive. But what also tells us how often you ski what you skied, what you purchased. Are you an expert skier? Are you a beginning skier? How often that is. And then your experience and what you're interested in becomes very predictive. You can then show or promote certain experiences that might be more relevant to you. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. Well, I'm excited to see what's next in your space. You've definitely 
pioneer, trailblaze, whatever you want to call it in our industry. Now, before we go, wanted to ask a few rapid fire questions just to get to know Eric a little bit. You ready? Go ahead. What's the very first thing you marketed? Going down the river. Yeah? That was it. That was, that was just like, come on. I put up a poster in the local bar <laughs> saying, I'm going down the river. Does anybody want to come? And I brought friends and other people that would then tell the story. Uh, and that was kind of the network essence of how it all started was a poster in the bar. Wow. I think... I think your story beats ours. When we first started our agency, this is again, web one. We knew nothing about sales and marketing. We started, we built a five page HTML website and literally Eric sat back and just go, okay, business is going to come. Business did not come. I had to go and do a bunch of networking like you and kind of meet some folks. Um, Favorite song or album you listen to on the ski hill? Tom Petty. (laughs) Ooh, which song? Any song? Free falling? <laughs> it's a great mix. I mean, it pushes you free falling. Yeah, That's All like right. coming off the top of a lip of a cornice and you're dropping into a chute. That's free falling. That's free falling. You a night owl or you're an early bird? Early bird. Absolutely. Fried chicken or curly fries? Fried chicken. Yeah. Yeah. Gotta have it. Gotta, it's got a twang to it. Yeah. Got swang. How many of the 47 resorts have you been to? Probably half of them. Is it 47? 40 resorts. And it's been 40. growing. The beauty of this business is when I travel for work, I get to bring my ski boots with me. Darn tootin'. I rent the skis when I'm there. One of the things is testing the product. And I love testing the product. So I have not been to all the Eastern ski areas, a lot of them, you know, Pennsylvania to New Hampshire and stuff like that. I've been to a number of them. So I haven't got to the Eastern, but most of the Western ones, yeah, all of them. And the Epic Pass gives me the pass to go anywhere I want at any of those resorts. One pass does it all. Was there a particular property that surprised you? You know, you thought one thing and when you got there, you're like, oh, I'm pleasantly surprised because of X. Beaver Creek. Where's that? Beaver Creek was this, uh, the, the tagline is not exactly roughing it. So it's the waiters with the cookies at the end of the day when you get off the line. And it's very high end, aspirational, top shelf place. But what surprised me was the skiing was really challenging and it was an amazing mountain. So the experience was truly amazing in terms of quality of village, but the skiing surprised me it was so good so i'd go back again that's the one that usually i say that that one surprised me and where exactly is beaver creek beaver creek is in colorado it's right beside vale in that valley there's two resorts on i-70 that goes across colorado so it's about two hours from denver if there was a book that you had to the one book you had that you could bring on a i was going to say deserted island but i guess for you it'd be a deserted ski cabin, what would you recommend folks read? Well, it would have to be an adventure kind of piece. Shackleton's Voyage. Shackleton's Voyage. Okay. I don't think I've... Is that the guy that like crossed the the Arctic and then left a bottle of whiskey, a bunch of whiskey? Because I think I bought one of those bottles. I shouldn't be talking about my my scotch problem, (laughs) but I bought one of those and it came in like a stack of hay and everything. That guy? Shackleton's Valiant Voyage to South Georgia Island from the Antarctic after his ship got 
crushed by ice in our Antarctica. That's right. And he took his crew with two lifeboats across the South Antarctic Sea in harrowing conditions. That was an adventure. All right. Okay. Well, hey, I wish you, Eric, all the best in your future snowy adventures. Yeah, I was very privileged to, to have the opportunity to speak with you and understand a little bit more about your story. Thank you for having us here. Thank you, Ted. It's been a pleasure chatting and, and anybody listening. Follow your passions. That's what I call. Yes, sir. So thanks, everybody, again. This is another great episode of Marketing News Canada. I'm Ted Lau. This is Eric Austin signing off. See you, everybody. See ya. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded in the Jelly Marketing Studio, thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editors, Travis Jeffers and The Podfather. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.